0: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Things You Don't Hear in Church podcast. My name's Ethan. My name's Derry, and today we have a really awesome guest, George W. Saris. Super awesome, super nice guy. Um, he's an author. He does actually a lot of voice acting as well. Um, have you ever done any like actual like acting, acting apart from voice acting? Just
1: yeah, questions. I actually have a one-man show where oh. um, I uh, I perform. Straight scripture. It's interesting. If if you go on uh, YouTube, you can see a couple of those things. Hmm. Google uh, or on YouTube, George W. Saris. you'll see a couple of those things there. Hmm. But um, uh, one in particular is the uh, real story of Easter, which is John 18, 19, and 20, do it Hmm. word for word. Uh, But I I acted out dramatically. So I have one prop, which is a scarf. And uh, that scarf becomes a king. It becomes a woman. It becomes a net depending on what the story is. Uh, there's all different kinds of things that I use. And uh, that's always a delight, just to be able to perform in a live setting. And it's just me. So I uh, Chadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the Blazing Furnace is one that I wow. do. The Book of Jonah, mm-hmm. uh, the Book of Esther, a number of those. And uh, one other thing that, that uh, some of your listeners would probably have heard, um, there is a product uh, on the market called Puffs Tissue. And puffs tissues hmm. um, are—they're like clean. Are Puff,
2: yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: I'm when you see a commercial, I'm the voice.
2: Oh wow, really? So, uh,
1: yeah. So the first one that came out about oh, I think 2016 or something. like That was a little girl named Dakota, and was uh, little Dakota's nodes was uh, shaking in fear because she thought an ordinary <laughs> tissue was near the uh, whatever. Anyway, the yeah, the yeah. um. Yeah. The the tagline and awesome. all the spots is a node's in need deserves puffs indeed. So nice. Oh right old, on. Both commercials, nice. Yeah,
3: that's that makes awesome. sense why your audiobook sounded so great to listen to. Like as I was listening to it, I was like, not only is this really educational or helpful, it's like I want to listen to it. It's yeah. enjoyable.
0: Yeah, it's awesome. well, thank
2: you.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah.
0: So you're a voice actor, you're a real actor, um, an author. Um George holds uh, a master's in divinity, and um, as well as a bachelor's in speech, right,
1: I believe? Right, right, bachelor of science in speech from Northwestern, MDiv from Gordon-Conwell Seminary.
0: Yeah, Yeah. and you also uh, voice acted for the NIV translation, didn't you? Or one of the NIV translations?
1: If you go on BibleGateway.com and you go to New International Version, there are three narrators for the entire Mm -hmm. Bible. There's David Suchet, Max McLean, and George W. Saris. I'm George W. Saris, So you can hear me read the entire Bible. Um, So you can go and click on uh, Leviticus 3.12. (laughs) (laughs) Read, Read Leviticus 3.12 or whatever it happens to be. That's awesome.
3: Awesome. That's so great. That's exciting. Yeah, that's great.
0: That's amazing. So today we're having George on to talk about hell, a topic that everybody (laughs) knows so much about and loves talking about all the time. Um, In reality, you know, it's a scary topic that a lot of people don't understand very well. Usually most of us are brought up with just one view, Um, but there's actually several different views of hell um, for our listeners or are listening. Mm -hmm. We're going to be doing um, a series like we've talked about previously. Um, And George is coming on today to talk about total restoration, um, which is one of the views classically of hell. Yeah. So, uh, George, is there anything in the intro you wanted to add on?
1: Uh, just that, um, I guess what I would say is that it's a view that most people have never heard of and yet oh, yeah. most people deep down inside either want to believe it or actually do believe it. It's kind of interesting. Uh, a lot of my friends who I've talked to over the years, um, they always have some kind of excuse, It, it you know, their theology dictates that they have to believe in unending hell, uh, suffering, never-ending suffering for actually the majority of the people that have ever been created. Right. Uh, but there's always some kind of a fudge factor for the people that I love. Hmm. You know that. Uh, well, when when uh, little Johnny was uh, three years old, he he prayed the, the the prayer, and so I know that he's in heaven. Right. Or yeah. Uh, Little Dolores over there, you know, she got in a car accident and I'm sure that just before she died, that, that something happened and, and, and God brought her in. There's always some kind of a fudge factor for the people that you love. Um, so it's, it's something that inherently everybody thinks, why couldn't God do that? You know, Why couldn't he save all the people that uh, exist in this world? Um, hmm. For me, I grew up in a very loving family. My father was a good father. I mean, he he made mistakes just like anybody else did, but he was a very good father. And my mother the same way. I always knew that they loved me and they loved my brother. And they would never abandon me. They would never abandon my brother. That I could get into difficulties. I could do things that were not pleasing to them. And they would be angry with me. They might discipline me in various ways. And they did (laughs) as the time went on. (laughs) Uh, But I always knew that they would never abandon me. That was extremely important, and then it was in 1969. Um, I was a, a junior in college at the time, and uh, I met a group of people uh, that had a different quality of life than I did. They were part of Campus Crusade for Christ, hmm. and a young man at the time, his name was Conrad Cook, invited me over for popcorn to talk about hmm. uh, God. And so I went to meet him, and he brings out this little booklet, and I thought, "Oh my goodness, this is ridiculous. Why did I even?" to come over. He's going to read this <laughs> stupid little booklet to me, right? As he opened up the booklet, my name was written on every single page. It was a booklet that talked about, it's one of Campus Crusade. say, I don't know if they have it anymore, but it's called, And You Made the Wonderful Discovery of Spirit-Filled Life, and it talked about three kinds of people. The natural man who does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, the spiritual man who walks with God, and then the carnal man, or the worldly man, who has Christ in his life, but he's not He's just another factor in love. And so uh, the way you get your life really walking with God is by putting Christ on the throne, putting him as the center and as the boss of your life. It just changed my life. I was excited hmm. when I found that out. And the idea was that God loved me. He was powerful. He could accomplish all kinds of things. God was great. And so I started reading the Bible. I got really excited about uh, the Bible. I read you know, as much as I could. Uh, from other books as well and uh, but as I was reading it it just didn't seem that God would be the kind of being who would either cause or allow billions of people to suffer consciously forever in hell it just didn't seem like that to what I was getting out of scripture as I was reading it but I had never heard anything different than that I mean as far as I had always heard that you know you pray this prayer you get to heaven you don't pray the prayer you go to hell and what is right. hell it's never-ending conscious torment um and so uh i was on campus Crusade for christ for the for four years in the early 1970s and um went to seminary and it still bothered me you know i had never heard anybody have any other view than that everybody is going to be somehow going to hell if you didn't pray or receive mm-hmm. christ during this life and um then there was kind of a minority view at the time, which has become now a, a legitimate more minority view. And that is annihilation, which I'm sure you'll, you'll deal with in your, uh, right. one of your upcoming talks there. Um, but nobody even mentioned anything about ultimate restoration. That was not even a, a topic of consideration.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But it bothered me. And so I decided that at the end of my third year of seminary, I would use that as the subject of a research paper. -hmm. And uh, I started doing the research, and every commentary that I read, every systematic theology I read, same thing, you know, that hell is never ending conscious torment for basically the majority of people that have ever been created. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then all of a sudden, I came across this one book, it was written in uh, 1878, exactly 100 years prior to when I was doing my uh, research there, by a man named Edward Beecher. And the title of the book was uh, The Scriptural uh, History of Opinions on the Scriptural Doctrine of Retribution. Hmm. Hmm. And uh, so I thought, okay, it was the last, really, it was about the last book I was going to read because I had already done all my other research. And uh, I pulled it out, I opened up the preface, and he says in this preface that this was not the book he intended to write and he intended to write a different book but his view changed as a result of his research well, what was his original view what did it change to and so as i began to read it he uh, went into a lot of the history he was really uh, quite a, a a good scholar he was uh, the brother of Harriet beecher stowe uh who was uncle tom's cabin author right and right. uh he was actually pastor of park street church in boston which is a even today is a wonderful evangelical church. Um, Mm. And, uh, but he came out with this book. And so what he, what really struck me was he pointed out that in the first five centuries of the church, a prominent view, and according to some scholars and according to him, the dominant view Mm. was that God was going to ultimately restore all of creation. All was real, but it didn't last forever. And his purpose was to restore, not just to. Very interesting. That was exciting to me. I thought, wow. And then he went into some other uh, sources of what in scripture, how that comes out. So it wasn't just something that the early Christian church believed. He actually pointed out areas within scripture. Um, The key factor really is, uh, or one of the major keys is how do you define the word that it's translated in almost all English translations as eternal or everlasting. So for example, the the main uh, verse that supports everlasting punishment is uh, Matthew 25, 46, where Jesus says, these will go into everlasting uh, uh, life. These will go into everlasting punishment. Hmm. Well, that's pretty clear, right? Mm-hmm. Until you look and find out what the word everlasting in the original Greek language means. And the word is ion in the Greek language, olam in Hebrew. Uh, and the word does not mean never ending. What it means is the end is not known. Mm-hmm. So, for example, it's, it's very much uh, what I use as the illustration for that is if you're standing on. In fact, you guys are in Hawaii, right? So you stand mm-hmm. on the beach, you look out. At the ocean and what do you see it goes on forever yeah well it right. doesn't really go on forever it just goes on for a long distance you just don't know where the end is so it's not that it keeps on going and going and going and never ends it's just that it keeps on going and going and going and ends somewhere It's just that you don't know where that ending is so mm-hmm. that's what the meaning really is in uh, scripture So, for example in the septuagint version of the bible which is the greek translation of the old testament mm-hmm. that was done prior to christ Coming. and the, 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 uh, the Bible that most of the people in um, the Greek speaking world at the time, uh, in fact, all of scripture, when you, uh, in the New Testament, when you see translations of Old Testament uh, verses, it's always taken from the Septuagint. Anyway, the word there that uh, where I- Ion is used, for example, it's used with Jonah. Uh, Jonah says, uh, to the roots of the mountains, I sank down the earth beneath barred me in forever. Well, Mm -hmm. he was only barred in for three days, but he didn't know how long he was going to be in the belly of a great fish. Mm -hmm. Um, The statutes, you see this all the time uh, when you're reading the Old Testament, you get into Exodus, into Leviticus, and it talks about the statutes of the Lord relating to worship are eternal statutes Mm -hmm. uh, relating to the uh, garments that, Aaron and the priests are going to wear, relating to the temple that was mm. built. These are eternal statues. But they were never intended to last forever. They were intended to last a long time. The mm. Old Testament sacrificial system, for example, lasted for almost a thousand years. Right. But right. it was to be changed when the new covenant came in. So mm-hmm. they use the word Ion or Olam to indicate that this is something that goes on for perhaps a very long time. We just don't know when the end is. But that's Mm -hmm. the meaning of the word. And so, Mm -hmm. for example, in the the passage where Jesus in 2546, the best translation, the the actual translation of that should be, these will go into life in the age to come. Mm -hmm. These will go into punishment in the age to come. But that doesn't mean that the life and the punishment are the same duration. It's not primarily a term relating to duration, it's really a term relating to quality. And uh, when when you talk about eternal life, for example, the, the key is not that it goes on forever, the key is that it's life with God, life in the presence of God. And Jesus even says that eternal life, you have eternal life in the here and now, because you are part of what God is doing in the world when you accept Christ into your life, That becomes something that is, you have eternal life then, because it's living in the presence of God, experiencing God's power. So I like the the term divine. I mean, it's almost like these go into divine life. These go into divine punishment. But what is divine punishment? Punishment that accomplishes its purpose, which is to bring a person to a point where they see their need for the saving grace of Christ in their lives. Um, Yeah. So it doesn't have to go on. It doesn't have to go on to uh, punishment does not have to go on forever. It just goes on until the person recognizes his need or her need for God Mm -hmm. and his saving grace. So the idea, by the way, uh, is not that there are a lot of different ways into heaven. I think that I'm convinced that scripture is inerrant, that Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the word of God is indeed the word of God, that Jesus is the only way into uh, the presence of God. But it doesn't have to happen in this life because there are. Not, there's not only this age, scripture talks about ages, mm. plural, to come. But if mm. this age, you have previous ages, you have the age to come, you have ages to come. So how God deals with all these things, I don't really know, but all I know is that God doesn't lose. What I say in my book is that God's love is unconditional, his power is irresistible, mm and he never gives up. Hmm. That's really the key. He never gives up. And so it's clear from Scripture that God says that it is his desire that everyone be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Hmm.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Okay? That's his desire. Right. It also says that with God, all things are possible. So the only real options are God was lying, and he didn't really want everyone to get into heaven,
2: Hmm.
1: or that he can't get everyone into heaven, Hmm. he's not powerful enough, or he will get everyone into heaven. And so my view is that, and I think it's what actual scripture teaches, that's what my book is all about, Hmm. teaches that God not only wants
2: everyone
1: in heaven, he is able to get them into heaven. And they will, at the end of time, he will get all those people that he created into his presence in heaven. So how long, uh, what is hell in terms of its duration? I have no idea. What is it really like? It's a lot of metaphorical uh, information. Um, One of the most important things to keep in mind is that uh, the Lake of Fire, which is where we often get our understanding of uh, hell, is for purification. I mean, fire was used primarily in the ancient world to purify things. It's not just to destroy things. You know, it was to be purifying. And so the the lake of fire is a purifying fire um, to prepare people and bring them to a point where they see their need for God and His saving grace in Christ.
3: So, in that sense of the lake of fire being a purifying fire, just to play devil's advocate for a bit. Sure. Does, does total restoration then include the devil and his angels as well being restored?
1: In my view, I don't address that particular issue in my book, just because mm-hmm. it's kind of a red flag. Um, the view of Gregory of Nyssa, who was uh, one of the greatest theologians in the history yeah. of the Christian church. In fact, in uh, 787, they had, the I think it was the seventh general council of the church. Uh, mm-hmm. He died around 395 A.D., um, mm-hmm. But anyway, so 400 years later, they uh, awarded him the 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 phrase, he he was determined to be father of the fathers. That was how great mm-hmm. he was. He added the phrase, okay. I believe, in the life of the age to come to the Nicene Creed. He was a very strong, uh, wonderful theologian. And yeah. uh, he believed that God was going to restore even the devil and the angels. And I agree with that. Uh, mm-hmm. My personal view is okay. that. Why would God not be able to restore the the devil? I mean, bottom line is, if God's all-powerful and he wants to save everyone, why couldn't he? He wants to give us a free will. He gave the devil a free will, gives all mankind a free will. But the interesting thing is the way God has structured life, he wants the very best. He wants the very best to be accomplished. Anything that is less than the best is going to be evil. In, in, the, in the fact, one of the definitions of evil is that which is less than the best, okay? That doesn't have to be grossly wicked. This has to be a little less than the best. Well, if if evil always leads to, in fact, that was one of the things that uh, one of the men, I think his name was uh, Theodore Montiwestia pointed this out, maybe Gregory of as well, but hmm. that sin always leads to misery in one degree or another, okay? Mm-hmm. So, eventually the more you pursue sin the more you experience personal misery as well as misery creating misery for other people right and so at some point you get to the point where you realize this is just plain stupid you know it's like a person who puts his hand in a fire and it's starting to burn and he's thinking this is just crazy i just got to take my hand out of the fire you You know? know well i think that the same thing with the devil and his angels that eventually they will realize that all these things they were pursuing to get power over people or trying to do whatever the devil is trying to accomplish, it leads to nothing. It leads to misery to him as well. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but that's, that's not something that I really address in my book tremendously. I, I address it more for people in this world. Uh, and right. And I'm yeah. convinced that that, that will really what what the book is or what this view ultimate restoration is really all about is that god doesn't give up at natural death
2: right natural death
1: is not the end of when god worked in a person's life to bring that person to a point where they see their need for god Mm -hmm. and his saving grace
3: yeah i just wanted to cover that one that one part because i was gonna in playing devil's advocate that one scripture also talks about how um, the devil and his angels will be thrown like a lake of fire as well. So I was just curious about what your thoughts were there. And yeah, you're consistent.
0: So there you go. I, I
3: think that.
1: that's the only way you can be consistent, really.
0: <laughs> right, right. Out of line. Um, what, a few minutes ago, you were talking about like those three different things of either God's not powerful enough or it does happen, right? Um, and we were talking about the will of God, like God desires everybody to be saved, right? Um, right. What's like the classic pushback on that? Because most of the time when I hear someone talking about that, they'll say, well, God has two different wills. One, like, is his actual will that is accomplished. One is just like what he kind of wants to happen, but he doesn't actually make happen. What do you think about that?
1: Well, I think those people are uh, giving, <laughs> they're basically saying God is in power. He's not sovereign. That's the bottom line for me. I mean, usually what the pushback on uh, that to when they say it to me is, well, God's given mankind free will. And so he's given mankind a sovereignty over their own free will. And my response to that is God is a chess master. This was really from a man named Tom Talbot who wrote a wonderful book by the way, um, called the, um, what's the name of the book? Uh, Unconditional Love of God, something like that. That's not the actual- The Inescapable Love of God? I'm sorry, what?
0: The Inescapable Love of God?
1: Right, Inescapable Love of God, right, by Thomas Talbot. And, uh, but he mentions in there that uh, God's like a chess master playing with novices.
2: Hmm.
1: Well, a chess master gives you the free will to make any move you want on hmm. the uh, on the the chessboard. But he knows the game so much better than you do that eventually you make all these different moves and you get checkmate. Well, yeah. that's how God works in life, that that God is able to give mankind a free will, and it's a legitimate free will, Mm -hmm. but he knows that he can corner it over here, corner over there, and eventually you you come to a point where you recognize your need for God and his saving grace, uh, Mm -hmm. that your life has been messed up. A great example of that is a prodigal son. right? father gave the prodigal son freedom to go off and and use all of the things that he had been given uh, to waste if he wanted to and he did and what happens he ends up seeing that it leads him to eating food uh, he wanted to eat the, the food he was feeding to the pigs
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, mm-hmm. suddenly realized i just got to go back, back to my father because my father even his servants are eating better than i am and so he goes back to his father and his father welcomes him well that is a wonderful illustration of god's love number one and two of what happens when we pursue sinful directions and are free to pursue them but eventually they lead to misery at that point you recognize your need for god and his saving grace through christ
3: yeah Hmm. Uh, upon hearing this has everyone has anyone ever asked you like well if everyone's going to be in heaven anyways eventually why like what's the whole purpose of all of this why not just create us in heaven already and i think people have that with any view you could you could have that with all the views right like why does god not just create those who are going to go to heaven and not create those who are going to go to hell i've had that people ask me that question but yeah, I guess yeah. for the total restoration view, like if we're all going to end up there anyways, like then what's the purpose here and now?
1: Yeah, um, there are two ways of asking the question. The one that most often gets I get asked is, "And why did Christ have to die?" I mean, if everybody's going to heaven anyway, why does Christ have to die? Well, the answer is because He's the one that provides the way that all mankind can get in. Right when right. Jesus says, "I came to seek and save what was lost," He was not using hyperbole, he was not overstating the case, he actually was going to accomplish that, and his death on the cross accomplished giving mankind, or providing the, the way for mankind to enter into the presence of God. And right. people have to recognize their need for that and apply it to their lives, right. but that's, um, that's why Christ had to die. I mean, nobody gets to heaven without the saving grace through Christ. Uh, right. Then the way that you are asking it, was why didn't God just kind of start at the very beginning and say, hey, I'm just gonna make a bunch of people that, that choose to follow me right away. Well, again, that would just make them into automatons, some kind of robot as opposed right. to getting true free will. And I, I think that what God wanted was true free will. And I call it, the, the, the view that I uh, call it is ultimate restoration. And the idea of restoration is not that you restore to what things were at the beginning, you restore to what things were intended to be. Hmm. So it's not just restoring Adam and Eve back in the garden. It's restoring what Adam and Eve were intended to be in the garden, so that hmm. they would have hmm. come and understand and recognize, uh, Now I don't want to eat that tree uh, from that tree. I want to follow God because I know that's where true life and that's where true blessing comes from. Hmm. Yeah, very
0: interesting.
3: Yeah, that's a good answer um, to the question and the ideas. And, isn't, and I think that's the, the correct, like, yeah, correct in the sense of like, for anyone asking like, why didn't God just do it this way? It kind of, I've, I've, uh, whenever, I, sorry, whenever I answer, it, I think like, well, it kind of like, assuming God did something wrong by saying, why didn't he do it another way? You know, you're assuming that you have a better way that God should have done it, which is problematic for humanity, because we're so finite, right? We're so small. But then to say, yeah, like to go through, it's almost like the father wanting a son to learn how to ride a bike, but having a, a plan B of like the, the like, a, what do you call them, those, what do they call them, the sides of the bike? Training wheels. Uh, training wheels oh, the there. training wheels, yeah. Yeah, where it's like, hey, like, you know, I I can't, like, you had to learn how to ride the bike, but there's also this ability where you have the safety to fall, and I'm going to pick you up, I'm going to pick you up, and stuff like that, and yeah. or like... I'm thinking if someone's learning how to walk a tightrope, right. They have a usually have a net or something on them. So it's like, you'll, you can't just like automatically be transplanted to learn how to walk a tightrope. You have to learn and you might fall, but then you just, there's ultimately that safety to, you're not going to die from the tightrope.
1: Yeah. And God really does give us a legitimate free will. And he gives us the privilege of being part of his kingdom and growing into that. And, um, really understanding, you know, instead of getting into heaven and kind of wondering, oh man, it sure would have been nice if I could have gone out and committed adultery a few times, or it would have been nice if I could have stolen some things um, (laughs) a little bit more. Uh, (laughs) People have actually, they've gone through that, and it's not nice. Hmm. This doesn't bring joy. What really brings joy, it's following in the path that God has established. By the way, one of the things I used to call myself before I came out publicly (laughs) For this view. I wrote the, my paper in uh, for seminary in 1978. And um, I got an A minus on my paper, which I was really quite excited uh-huh. about. And uh, I presented it to the, the professor. And then there were some other professors by um, uh, advisor. And then there was another professor that I really, truly respected at the seminary. And I gave them copies of the paper. And they looked at me and they kind of treated me um, a little patronizing, you know, like, well, George, that's a good paper, he did a nice job. But what you don't realize is that in the interim between the, like, say, 500 AD and uh, later on, people began to realize that that was not the correct view. And again, at the time, I thought, I, I literally thought I was the only living person in the 20th century who had <laughs> the view that God was going to ultimately restore all of creation that, were, that right. also believed in the Bible, right? I believe that the Bible is true and God is going to restore all of creation. And so I kept it as a, a private hope for a lot of years. I, I passed it along, um, uh, like when I joined a, a church, I made sure that I passed that on to the pastors so they knew where I was coming from. And the pastor yeah. always would say, uh, well, just don't talk about it, <laughs> and, uh, you know? And but there were times when I would meet somebody who's someone they loved had died and they were not a Christian or at least had never made any kind of public profession to that. And, uh, so I would pass it along to people and say, you know, this is just something that, um, I think you might, uh, find it encouraging. Uh, it's a view that was held at one point in the church. I actually hold to the, that view as well. Um, but it might be encouraging to you. And it always was, I mean, everybody I gave it to was so grateful that I uh, handed a copy of my paper. And then um, many years, actually it was, wrote the paper in 1978, 2007, right? I uh, I decided that, oh, you know, I gotta do something with it. I always thought I had to somehow make it, my view known. Again, if I'm the only person in the 20th century and <laughs> the 21st century, I ought to yeah. at least make it known. And so I decided to uh, update my paper. I thought, you know, what I'm gonna do is just kind of revise it because it's a, it's a seminary research paper it's not it's not something that can be easily read and so I Mm -hmm. picked it up again and I started doing that and I I wanted to um look uh go back to to read what Edward Beecher had said the the guy that um wrote his book in uh, 1878 um opinions and uh, so I looked on the web and the fascinating thing was we actually had this thing called the internet where you could (laughs) you could find stuff I mean, mm-hmm. before that, if you wanted to get any kind of theological, deep theological work, you had to go to a, a major library. You had to go to right. Harvard, or Yale, or uh, their divinity schools, or to Gordon Conwell. And even Gordon Conwell, uh, they only had this one book. I mean, they didn't have a whole bunch of books on that particular topic. And uh, but now oh, I could actually read Origin, or I could read Gregory of Nyssa, um, mm-hmm. or Theodore Hotowesi. I mean, it was amazing what, what the internet gave opportunity to do. So anyway, I wanted to get a see if i could get a copy of uh the um book by edward beecher and i came across a website that uh it was called tentmaker.org tentmaker.org and uh on it it said that this person believed that the bible was true and that god was going to ultimately restore all creation i was shocked Hmm. there's somebody else that might might believe this so i I found a, a telephone number and i called the guy up his name was gary emerald and i said um Hi, my name is George Saris. I uh, wrote a paper back many years ago on this uh, issue of ultimate restoration. Said, Do you believe that the Bible is true and that God is ultimately going to restore all of creation? Yes. <laughs> I, was, I thought, wow, this is exciting. Well, then I found out there are a whole bunch of other people that believe that as well. And uh, he recommended another book, uh, a great book called Hope Beyond Hell by a man named Jerry Bochman. And, uh, i got a copy of that book and i read that and that was very encouraging to me and uh my my original view back in 1978 was that there was room within scripture for this view Hmm. after doing more research after 2007 i became convinced this was the actual teaching of scripture it's not just that there is room within scripture this is what actually teaches and so that was when i ended up uh writing my book but anyway prior to uh coming out publicly uh I was working with a christian ministry in new york to media professionals and uh i'd been you know in other uh, i had worked for the bowery mission in new york for a while as well and when people would talk to me i'd say well i'm really a calvin mini mm-hmm. but i think calvin was right on certain areas and jacob arminius was right on certain areas so i'm a calvin mini <laughs> you know meaning calvinists think of god as sovereign and all-powerful mm-hmm. but he's not really you know, he's he's willing to, even though he's able to save all, he chooses only to save some. The Arminians believe that God loves everybody, but he's basically weak, that he can't save everybody because he gives mankind a free will. He won't violate that. And uh, I don't think he violates free will, but that's kind of an argument. So I thought, well, I'm taking all-powerful part from the Calvinists and the all-loving part from the Arminians. And I put them together and I call myself a Calvinian. And that was kind of cool <laughs> because everybody thought that was cute. And uh, it was the kind of thing that I could just say, yeah, you know, I think they're both, they both both have aspects of the truth. They just haven't gotten the whole thing together. And uh, so that was a real help to uh, to share with people how I believed something that um, if I had told them that I was an outright uh, ultimate re- restorationist, I, I don't like to use the term universalist, although that's really what it was, right.
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: uh, ultimate restorationist. If I told him that,'d kind of you know step back a little bit and wonder, uh-huh. what is this guy talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, because they've never heard,
0: right. Yeah. very interesting. I would love to go back to what we talked about at the beginning when you started to talk about some of the history of some of the church fathers that believe this and how maybe our uh, beliefs evolved into what they are today of most people believing in, you know eternal conscious torment. Um, could you go over that a little bit more in depth for us from, say, like Jesus's time? on throughout till today, just really quick.
1: Yeah, I think that Jesus and the apostles believe that. I mean, Paul talks about how at the end of time, every knee will bow and Mm -hmm. every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord with the glory of God the Father. Um, The word for confess there that that Paul uses, uh, every tongue will confess, is actually a term that means praise. It's voluntary Hmm. acknowledgement. It is Hmm. praise that is done. It's used a lot in the Septuagint, in the book of Psalms, as you're praising the Lord, that kind of thing. So anyway, um, I believe that obviously the Apostle Paul, uh, John says that um, uh, Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Um, Hmm. uh, And so that's where you go from there. Anyway, then for a long time in the early Christian church, they didn't have scriptures until a couple hundred years later, maybe, you know, because... you you're still writing it, Uh, you know, um, they had maybe one document that came 30 years later, after Jesus is risen from the dead, maybe Matthew, or Mark, or Luke, or John, Uh, John actually wasn't written until the end of the first century, by the time it got circulated around, and other kinds of things, so a lot of the, the, uh, the scripture was Old Testament scriptures, and uh, they were looking at who God was, and what God was doing, and uh, if you look at the, the, the creeds, um, the Apostles' Creed doesn't talk about punishment. Uh, The Nicene Creed doesn't talk about punishment. It says that there will be life in the age to come. There will be judgment, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't say what that judgment is going to be. And so in the early Mm -hmm. church, there actually were three different views, which is what you'll be talking about. There were some people that believed in endless punishment. There were some that believed in annihilation, but I think the majority actually believed in ultimate restoration. And uh, Mm -hmm. and, then, A number of years later, when you're a persecuted church, you got to remember the, the Christians, they were, uh, in the eyes of the pagan Roman world, they were a, a threat, and right. uh, that's why you have Nero comes along and he, you know, throws Christians <laughs> to the lions, and uh, right. this is not, a, it, so you had people that were pretty, pretty dedicated to their faith, <laughs> nearly the hmm. part yeah. of the Christian church, right? Well, then, when Constantine became uh, emperor and he was a Christian, he made Christianity the preferred religion of the empire. It was not official. It it did not become the official uh, uh, religion of the empire until later, but it was the preferred religion of the empire because the emperor believed it. right? That's what the emperor stands for. And so, therefore, you begin to get people that are, have mixed motives in the positions of leadership and uh that's really what began to happen as people got into this whole uh leadership structure but they're they want to please the emperor as well as uh hold to the firm faith and um it was really this emperor uh justinian the first in i think he was around five twenty nine or 27, something like that, till 569, somewhere there, that he ruled the Eastern Roman Empire. And uh, he was very strong, wanted to reestablish the Roman Empire to what its glory had been. And uh, it's, it's powerful to be able to torture people because they don't agree with you uh, and take their lives. That's power. But if you can not only do it in this life, but you can declare that it's gonna be done in the life to come. That's real power. And so there was this this desire for power that came into certain people within the the Christian church at different times in history. Some people had honest, uh, really great, wonderful people. Others had mixed motives. Um, St. Augustine, who is around the 400s AD, um, he was 380 something, I think is when he was born and died in four something. 20 something. I can't remember the specific dates. But anyway, mm-hmm. he was a uh, the strongest supporter of endless punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he had been what was called a Manichaean. Manichaeans uh, right. believe that there is a dualism. You have basically a God, a good God and an evil God. It's like Zoroastrianism mm-hmm. in that sense. And right. that there's always this cosmic battle of good and evil that will go on forever. Well, then he became a Christian and he gave up a lot of his views. But I think that that kind of uh, affected some of his thinking, personally. That's what I think. And uh, fa- the interesting factor was he didn't read Greek. Yeah. He read Latin, and yeah. he read the scripture in the Latin translation. He did not read Greek, where Gregory of Nyssa, Theodore of Matsuestia, uh, Origen, um, Clement of Alexandria, these earlier theologians who believed in ultimate restoration, they spoke Greek. That was their native language. They understood the nuances of of Greek, whereas uh, Augustine did not. But even Augustine said that in his day, some, indeed many, deplore the idea of the interminable uh, uh, punishment of the wicked. So even in his day, he was acknowledging that A lot of people don't believe that. They believe that God is going to ultimately restore all. But Justinian kind of took the the writings of uh, Augustine as he was a very influential theologian and uh, just kind of ran with that. Then uh, at, at some subsequent point, that became the dominant view. And what happened is once you have the power and authority of the government or the Um, establishment whatever it happens to be behind you you intimidate people and once they're intimidated they're afraid to speak out and then what happens after that is people just forget about it they don't even talk about it and uh, and you, you, you sort of see that to a certain extent I don't know politically where the people are that are watching uh, here, but you you really do have the deep state, (laughs) you know, whether you like the deep state or don't like the deep state, there is a deep state. You've got people that are entrenched within every uh, government, whether that's church government, civil government or whatever. And uh, when you've got people that have mixed motives in those uh, positions, then a lot of the, not everyone is, pursuing truth we're pursuing a doctrine. In fact, uh I I just finished writing another book by the way that uh, I hope will get published. But the Uh. the title the title of that book this one is not controversial. (laughs) This is kind of an introduction to the the Christian faith, but the, the title is searching for truth in Vegas, Hollywood and Bethlehem. And, uh, but the idea of searching for truth is really the key. And I think that's something that your generation actually is really pursuing. And I like the, right. the title that you have for your podcast, you know, things that you never <laughs> learned. In the church. But that's really important because I want to pursue truth. I don't want to just defend doctrine. And there are too many people that are defending doctrine instead of pursuing truth. So If you're pursuing truth, where does it lead? Well, I think it leads right to scripture and right to the God of heaven and earth who has been uh, what Christianity has been based on since its very mm-hmm. beginning. Um, but I'm not, I'm not just trying to defend a doctrine. I wanted to pursue truth. In fact, right. one of the, the, the very first research paper I did in, in seminary was on the uh, authority of scripture. Was mm-hmm. scripture inerrant or not? Because, mm-hmm. because at the time, this is back in the early uh, mid-70s, 1970s, um, there was really a, a questioning being done. Is scripture infallible or inerrant? Well, hmm. seems like that's come on, aren't they both the same? No. What people were saying was the one group were saying, well, it's infallible in the area of teaching about spiritual truth, but it's not infallible or inerrant in the sense that it whatever it addresses, taken in context and in what it's intended to be doing is absolutely true. So Once I came to that convi- conviction, that scripture is inerrant, um, then I thought, okay, I gotta find out what scripture actually teaches on this particular subject. And I came to the conclusion uh, that it was, that God was going to ultimately restore all of creation, that everyone he created. He, and again, just like, I think I can remember if it was before we started recording or not. but My parents were great parents. I knew they loved me. I knew they would never abandon me. And that was true with the God who made all mankind. I mean, he loved all of those he created and he will never abandon any of them.
3: Right. Um, earlier, when we were talking about the church fathers, you mentioned uh, Gregor and Nicaea and Origen. And I was under the assumption that Origen was, mo- was an annihilationist. But before we get to that, which maybe I'm wrong there, um, but uh, before we get there, also, I guess I want to ask your opinion on like, what teachings of the church followers do we accept and what do we reject? Because I also know that Origen had some writings about like preexistence of souls. Right. And he, he believed that like Jesus was able to like pay for our sins. Cause he's the only one who was preexistent that didn't um, like fall away. And the rest of us did. Right. And I think a lot of us would say, Oh, that's a false teaching right now. And so, yeah, what's that line of taking these beliefs that they hold and then separating them from like, OK, that's true. We can take from that. And then that is clearly anti-biblical. We're going to reject that.
1: Yeah. Uh, Origen is a fascinating character. Um, and a lot of what you read about what Origen taught, he didn't teach. Right. Okay. <laughs> In fact, when when uh, he didn't, I'm not sure about the pre-existence of souls, but I, 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 I was reading something recently by a woman named Ilaria. Aler- Al- Ilaria. Ramelli, Ilaria Ramelli. She uh, is a wonderful theologian, uh, Roman Catholic theologian. And uh, she, she reads all these ancient languages. I mean, she's just this phenomenal woman. And uh, in fact, a close friend of mine uh, who uh, is a professor of, he's actually Professor Emeritus of Classics at Brown University and Professor at, of mm. uh, Classics at New York University, uh, David Constan. I was talking with him one day and he said, Oh man, Ilaria! I mean, He's just amazing. <laughs> it was amazing to her, to him. I, I was having lunch with with uh, David, and he was just quoting things. I mean, you know, oh yeah, well, Plato was saying this, and Socrates was saying that, and this, then, the other thing. And it was like, Oh my goodness, this guy knows so much. <laughs> and he was extolling the virtues of Ilaria because they had written a book together called uh, mm. Time and Eternity. They go into the words. Relating to endlessness, uh, Ion, and then this other word that oh, okay. uh, used as well. And so they were discussing that in classic literature and Christian literature in the ancient world. And so yeah. David did the classics, and then Ilaria did the Christian literature. But anyway, so okay. she was mentioning that a lot of the things that people say about origin was just not true when you read right. what origin actually said. Um, oh, okay. I think a lot of it, and also, by the way, origin mentions that he's kind of, he wrote the first system of uh theology in the Christian church. I mean, he kind of grabbed all these things together. He was the one who really started coming up with the idea of the Trinity and the deity of Christ, uh, mm-hmm. formulating it more carefully mm-hmm. in what was going on. And he's become, more and more people are beginning to recognize that, wow, he was really a, a great man. And so, yeah, in more recent years, people have they, at one point they were just kind of throwing him out and saying that yeah, you know he's no good but now people mm-hmm. are recognizing wow he's had a lot to say that was tremendous but he mentioned that some of these are speculative ideas that he's coming up with he's not coming mm-hmm. down hard on it but then you come to something like the and that was the brilliance of the early church they have the apostles creed you have the nicene creed they don't go into a lot of detail i mean they're not mm-hmm. talking about well is it infant baptism or believers baptism and yeah. is it Millennial, amillennial post-millennial um you know are all these different they didn't get into a lot of those things they're talking the basis yeah what is really true and what really the heart of christianity is all about so you you begin to read and if you read some of these people they're brilliant you know yeah and um they just know a lot of wonderful things and uh it's not really um it's not a lot of controversial things that they they go into the ones that were controversial that were Thrown out were people that believed that Jesus was basically the precursors of Jehovah's right. witnesses. For example, right, right, right. That Jesus oh, was a okay. created being, and okay. Athanasius was one guy that came along and said, "Well, if Jesus was a created being, and we're told to worship him, then we worship an idol." mhm mm-hmm. oh, that just kind of at the Council of Nicaea that just sort of broke everything open. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know the the guy a man by the name of Arius was the one who was uh holding to that particular view so you got to be careful when you when they talk about the church fathers being um having weird things to say well who are the church fathers um it's not Arius and it's not some of the people that were were uh promoting erroneous views they were recognized for the erroneous views that they were promoting and most mm-hmm. of the early church fathers really were solid in terms of their uh, their theology. So it's you right. know it, I, I'm not a great patrician theologian at all, but I have read some of that stuff. And the other interesting thing is, most evangelicals <clears throat> we believe the guy that the Bible is God's word, and I'm an evangelical, believe the guy Bible is God's word. But we go from the apostles and we jump to the reformers. So we go from you know, 60 AD or, uh, or 100 AD, whatever, and we jump mm-hmm. to 1500 AD. Right. And then 1500 years or 1400 years in between, we just kind of, we don't even know about it. Even the professors, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. it was interesting. I had a very close friend of mine uh, who became a close friend of mine. He was actually the professor I wrote my paper for. And then at, uh, after I graduated from seminary, his family and my family, we just became wonderful uh, friends And at one point, he even said, George, I want you and your wife. My wife and I are going to be traveling overseas. Would you, if we both die, would you and your wife be the caregivers for our children? That's how close the relationship we had. I mean, it was just really wonderful. But he wrote to me, contacted me several years later. And he said, um, George, can you share? This was before I wrote my book. He said, uh, can you share some uh, information on your view? Because uh, I don't really know very much about it but what happens is these theologians they go to seminary and they go into graduate school or whatever it is and they'll take a course on ancient church history That's Mm -hmm. one course and then they go on to whatever their specialty is right right the person who owns the phd he knows a tremendous amount of information about a very very tiny topic right yeah i used to say that if i had to choose between being a librarian or a PhD, I choose the librarian, because the librarian knows where to get the information. He may not know, or he or she may not know all the specific information, but knows exactly where to go to get it. Whereas the PhD knows a tremendous amount of uh, information on one small, tiny topic, but doesn't necessarily know about all these other things. And so, in the evangelical world, we know a lot about what Calvin said, and what Luther said, and Hmm. Zwingli said, and all these reformers. Gregory of Nyssa, yeah, I think I heard of him. Theodore right. of Apostolos, yeah, of Westia, I, no, I don't know who he was. Um, Clement of Alexandria, no, I don't really know him either. Um, yeah, Athanasius, I do remember his name. You know, they just don't mm-hmm. really know very much. They've not really read very much of what these people have written. So that's where part yeah. of the difficulty comes within the evangelical. Hmm, and the interesting, interesting thing is this view of ultimate restoration is one that... Um, has never been a, uh, a view spoken, to, uh, well, it's, uh, it's never been a doctrinal aberration within the Eastern Orthodox Church
2: hmm. because mm-hmm. they go
1: back to the early Christian fathers. They are the Greek Orthodox or Russian right. Orthodox or Antiochian Orthodox or whatever. They go back, their theologians read a lot of the early church fathers because that's what they all do. You know, yeah. so uh, it was a minority view is a minority view within that area. But I remember talking to one man who was a, this was when I was still thinking about writing my book. And uh, I went up to one uh, Orthodox, uh, I, he was a priest, Orthodox priest. And I said, by the way, are you familiar with the term apokatastasis, which is the Greek term for restoration? He said, oh, hmm. yeah. He said, um, yeah, Gregory of Nyssa held to that view. Hmm. Hmm. I didn't hmm. kind of interesting and that church is called a theologomenon. theo meaning god phenomenon meaning word it's a kind of hmm. think of it as a personal word from god you can hold that view but it's neither yeah. it's neither doctrine nor heresy within the Orthodox church it's yeah uh, some people believe and it. i think okay, but we haven't come strongly down on that
3: right and i think that's something to keep in mind too when anyone's exploring these views is like the only the most important things that you gotta remember are what determines salvation. You know, that is your belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and forgiveness of sins. Right. You know, other than that, everything else is kind of like, okay, this might not be a salvific term. This might not have. This might. Mm-hmm. This subject isn't gonna determine if I go to heaven or hell. Like what I believe about hell, God's not gonna be like, ah,
0: oh, you missed it. You had a thirty-three
3: percent right. chance, and
0: you believe you believed that was the only way to only way to be saved, but. You believe but, that people were annihilated, so sorry you're not getting in. Yeah,
3: that. right, like God's yeah. not that, that. Uh, I don't know what you call it, petty maybe is the word, or that, that
1: um, It's not contingent on salvation. Yeah, well, I exactly. Think, I think what has happened within the evangelical world is that we have misunderstood what the Great Commission is. We've changed the Great Commission to go and make converts instead of go and make disciples. What God wants us to do is to make people who are growing in their faith becoming dynamic in their faith not just that i prayed the prayer now i can go out and do whatever i want god all my sins are forgiven past present future i don't have to worry about that anymore no Mm -hmm. he wants you to grow in your knowledge of god in your relationship with him with others so that you can become a true disciple and that will get you into scripture that will get you to become somebody who understands more or who's experiencing more of the fruit of the spirit in your life consistently instead of just that well I got a get out of jail free card you know right Right. it's not just go and make converts it's go and make disciples and what Mm -hmm. is a disciple really all about?
2: and I think that's really
1: the where the, the Christian church has fallen short the evangelical church has fallen short in the last number of years that we we've kind of changed the idea from building disciples into converts and uh, we need to, to give back to building disciples who are growing in their faith, becoming mature in their walk with God.
3: Yeah. I'm really happy that you brought up the great commission because I was going to, I was going to want to ask you the question, how has believing ultimate uh, restoration changed how you go about sharing your faith or going about evangelism?
1: I talk about my faith all the time. It's interesting. Uh, And I don't, because I I work in the secular world. Uh, Now I'm older, (laughs) although I still work there. But uh, after um, COVID hit, uh, I don't get into New York City very often because you have to have, uh, it it just doesn't work. Everything is closed down. And so now because of the internet, I actually, like right now we're Zooming. I'm in Connecticut. You're in Hawaii. and We can actually talk. In real time to one another. Well, actually, mm-hmm. the commercials that I do, like the commercials for Puffs, um, I'm in my home studio and they're in New York. In fact, one of the Puffs uh, commercials that we did a little, it was, uh, maybe a few months after COVID hit, um, I just said, Well, you know, where are you? Well, the producer was in Brooklyn, the engineer was in Long Island, one of wow. the other producers was in Australia. Because oh, she was wow. from Australia went back home to visit her family. And so it's 3 o'clock in the morning for her.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, We're doing the recording session. Kind of fascinating, but you can do that kind of thing. And um, with uh, the way technology and everything else works there. With regard to my faith, I would talk to people all the time about my faith. Yeah. And, uh, and I, what I would find is that I would talk to them and I would ask them, their faith? what do they think of? You know? And if you're willing to listen to people tell you what they think, they'll be willing to listen to you tell them about what you think. And what I've convinced, what I became convinced of was that if you really want to be an effective evangelist or uh, ministering in the Christian world, what you've got to focus on is building relationships. If you build a relationship with someone, the time will come when you are just naturally bring in something from Scripture. There were many times where I would talk to people, and they're having problems in their marriage. Well, my wife and I just celebrated our fifty-first wedding anniversary. Wow! I'm bro. more in love with my wife now than I was when I first got married. We have had all kinds of issues over the time. I and mean, we've had knockdowns, uh, drag <laughs> fights, you know. And in fact, one of the, I, somebody asked me uh, recently, "Well, how'd you get to the fifty-one years? What was the secret?" I said, "Well, it was my wife." Because my wife, I was the kind of guy that, if a problem came up, look, we'll talk about it tomorrow. You know, we'll just kind of let it ride. It's not a big deal. We'll talk about it tomorrow. She's the type of person. That says, no, no, we got to talk about it now. So it's three o'clock in the morning, and we're arguing about this particular thing, but we mm. dealt. With it. We mm. dealt with it right away, and then the next morning, it was gone. And there have been uh-huh. maybe two or three times in my life. My relationship with your wife didn't do that i was the one that did. we'll talk about it in the morning it was worse in the morning but most divorces come because you've got a problem and another problem and another problem these are all small problems but they build and build and build and suddenly you got this gigantic mountain built out of little tiny small problems well anyway so i would be able to share with people because people come along and they want to know about um and that by the way don't let the sun go down to your wrath, right? That's one of the things, deal with problems as they come up. That's a biblical principle. I would share yeah. people with people about biblical principles. Um, problems with their children. You know, I've got five children and we homeschooled our kids. And one of the big questions was always, homeschool your kids. And this is when it was not a popular thing. When we first started homeschooling, it was not necessarily legal to do that in, uh, in all the, the states around the country. And uh, in fact, we were in Massachusetts at the time And uh, there was a court case that went to the state Supreme Court to find out whether it was legal for people to actually teach their children at home. It ended up Mm. being um, decided in favor of homeschooling. But anyway, so uh, I was always um, very much involved with my children. I tried to apply biblical principles of discipline and of loving uh, to my children. And so people having problems with their kids, they would come and I got a chance to talk to them from a biblical perspective. And yeah. lead them into talking about God and God's word and uh, Jesus Christ and what Christ has done in my life, sharing my, my testimony with people about how I transformed my life in 1969. Why? Mm-hmm. Because I saw that God was the boss and I was the servant instead of the other way around. I don't tell God what to do. Mm-hmm. He tells me what to do. And as I fit in with God's plan for life and I experience the fruit of the spirit increasingly. And so anyway, it just would, as I build relationships with people, because of ultimate restoration, I'm not afraid of anybody. I'm not afraid that I can't talk to them. There was one guy that came into the, my agent's office one day. He's on the phone and uh, yeah, we're gonna get married. Uh-huh, oh yeah, I'm excited about it too, in June. Uh-huh, oh, that's really great. Yeah, thanks a lot, bye, hang on. So I, a conversation said, oh, you're getting married, yeah, yeah, uh, what's your name? Oh, his name is. I thought, oh, okay, here's a guy guy, right? He's gonna get married to this other gay person. I said, how does that work? That was a legitimate question I had. How does that work? I mean, does one of you take more of the domestic side of things, or one of you take more of the providing type of things? Whose last name do you take? Um, or or do you hyphenate the last name? You know, I just was asking some honest questions and establishing a relationship with this guy. I didn't have to try to either tell him he was a sinner and going, you know, doing these terrible, horrible things, or to try to convert him right away. I could just establish a relationship with him, knowing that that's going to happen. Another guy that was, um, uh, he actually was uh, doing recording session, or auditioning me on a number of occasions. He was actually somebody that worked with my agent, and uh, I knew that he was gay, and uh, he was going to, he never told me that, and uh, he never mentioned it to me, but he knew where I stood in terms of my faith, that I wasn't even dealt Christian, and you know, i talked about that all the time. And um, uh, so I go into a, an audition this one time, and he said to me, um, by the way, I'm gonna be moving to uh, San Francisco. I- I'm leaving here, I'm gonna move to San Francisco. Oh, that's great, Noel. That's really wonderful to hear. Um, could I pray for you? Yeah, that'd be great. So I prayed for him that God would guide him, and that God would work in his life, and God would lead him increasingly to a, a dynamic life and, and provide for the needs that he has there. After finished the prayer, he said, you know, my, my family hates me. They think I'm this terrible, wicked person. And uh, I thought, when he goes out to San Francisco, if he continues to pursue that lifestyle, I'm convinced that he will come to a point where he realizes that it's a dead end. And I want him to know that there was this evangelical that believed that the Bible was true that he talked to numerous times over the years back in New York who loved him and yet was pursuing truth so that when he comes to the end of its rope, he'll say, maybe I'll look into that. So those are the kinds of things that happen. Another guy, just one other story. Um, He was a, a, a very successful announcer, Uh, you would have heard his voice on a lot of different things. And uh, he was writing a book on spiritual things and I was writing a book on spiritual things. And um, so we would talk about our books at different times and he was way far left, I'm way far right, okay? As far as he was concerned, what's going on there. And uh, so anyway, one day, uh, but I had a good relationship with him. So one day we're on the train because we both were from Connecticut and we happened to be on the train Sat down together talking about these things. And he was waxing eloquent about uh, how he hated the current administration. And this was all oh, this is for you know, these people are just after money, money, money. Everybody's after money, money, money. They don't care about people, they just want money. And so I looked at him and I said, Jeff, what percentage of your income do you give away? He <laughs> was kind of shocked. I don't know, um, maybe 1% i give, I make less money than you do by far, but I give away a significantly larger percent of my income than you do of yours. You talk about how you love people, but you're just keeping all your money for yourself. You're not helping anybody. You <laughs> he look at me and said, oh, you sure got me there. <laughs> 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 I said, um, um, you know, I, I worked at the Bowery Mission and I, I help at a homeless area there. I, I actually it against abortion i'm against abortion i do some things that are done because this is where my faith is leading me um you're a hypocrite you talk about how you want to help people but you're not helping you hmm. and i said jeff have you ever actually asked god if he was real oh I can't say that i ever have and i said well let me just encourage you to do that you get home just engage god in a conversation say god I just want to know if you are real, would you please reveal yourself to me? And then I said, but don't do that unless you're really serious. Because if God is real, and if he does reveal himself to you, you will probably have to make some changes in your lifestyle. So don't do it unless you're really serious. He got off the train, I got off the train, didn't see him for a couple of months, ran into him in the uh, subway a couple months later, and uh, I said, uh, Jeff, good to see you. Uh, good to see you, too, George. I said, By the way, did you ever pray that prayer? <laughs> this was his words. Said, well, as a matter of fact, me and him, we had a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was, was so cute, right? The next wow. time I saw him, the next time I saw him was a few months later, the night before he died. Wow. wow. He, uh, he had been diagnosed with uh, brain cancer, and I nobody knew. I mean, I didn't know anything about it. until so all of a sudden, somebody called me and said, by the way, did you hear about Jeff? Uh, he di- was diagnosed with brain cancer. He's in the hospital. It, it looks like he's going to die. Hmm. Well, I knew where he lived. I knew there was a hospital near there that I could pro- that he probably was in. And so I called the hospital and I said, uh, so-and-so in your hospital, yes, he is. Uh, can he have visitors? Yeah, yeah, you can come down. There. And so I went down and I'm going up to the the floor where he was on, and uh, I walked up to the nurse's station. I said, uh, I would like to see this person. Uh, is, is it okay for me to go in there? Oh, yeah, yeah you can go. And on my way to the door, I'm saying, God, please don't have anybody else in there, because I know that if I go in there and he's really sick the way he's supposed to be sick, they're going to kick me out. They don't know me from Adam. I, I walked in. He was all alone. He couldn't talk, and I said to him, uh, said, uh, Jeff, do you know who I am? He nodded his head. Do you want me to leave? He shook his head. I said, "You know, we didn't realize just how significant that conversation we had was about God, mm-hmm. and over the years, different questions that we've had about God." Um, wow. But I pray for you, and I prayed for him. I finished my prayer. His wife came in and kicked. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> went to his. Fun- I went to his funeral, and it was interesting. There were several people that talked uh, at his funeral about how. There was something different about him in the, the the previous weeks and months prior to his uh dying. And they were attributing it to the fact that I think I think he knew he was gonna die. Hmm. I attributed it to the fact that he actually entered into a personal relationship with God. Whether he did or not, I don't know because I wasn't hmm. able to actually ask him that time. But um I had established a relationship with him and I could talk to him freely. I wasn't I didn't have to get him to pray a prayer. I didn't have mm-hmm. to get him to agree with me on something. He could stay disagreeing with me as much as he wanted to. Mm-hmm. But I could be free to share my thoughts with him and allow him to share his thoughts with me knowing that eventually God is going to win. That's yeah. the thing. God is going to win. like I said at the one point in our conversation, God's love is unconditional, his power is irresistible. And he never gives up, and that's what to me has given me a freedom to be able to interact with just about anybody.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I'd love to get into a few of the like finer details. Um, yeah. As we're getting like long in the episode here, um, I think we've kind of established like there is a history to this view, right? It's not it's not baseless historically, right? There's lots of people throughout history who have been like prominent church fathers, especially Origin, who was one of our first. Um, who believed this thing, right? So it's not uh, crazy to believe it. We've established that people may have not heard it before. So now we've based it in that, right? And we've gone through to where eternal suffering or eternal conscious torment uh, came about and we know about like how it happens today, why we all believe a lot of those things, right? Um, One thing that I want to go into, um, we've talked about how the word eternal in the Bible uh, just means an age or an unknown amount of time, right? So I think people can wrap their minds around, okay, well, maybe when it talks about in the Bible, like um, this eternal punishment thing, uh, maybe it's not eternal, maybe it's just punishment for a while. Um, I think then the next step to take, there's kind of like two steps in my in my mind of mm-hmm. of thinking about restoration is now, where does the all kind of come into it, right? Because we you quoted a couple of verses um, that Paul talks about where it's um, Christ's desire that all come or that every knee will bow, right? Talked about that. Mm-hmm. How do you contrast those verses um, to certain verses, like a lot of Calvinists will use in uh, in Romans nine, where it's talking about the remnant of Israel, right? Or um, in Luke, um, I forget where in Luke where Christ is talking about the narrow gate and only a few will find it, right? How do you how do you contrast those like all and every statements of praise with um, like there's a few that will find this path and that kind
1: of thing? Good question. I mean, it's encouraged people. I don't know if you can read it, but that's my book, Heaven's Doors, Wider Than You Ever believe, and I deal Mm -hmm. with all those issues in that book, Um, because those are important issues to bring up, for sure. Yeah. Um, Let me see which one. You said uh, Romans 9. Uh, That's a big one that the Calvinists always come up with on on that one, that uh, God uh, hardened Pharaoh's heart, that um, uh, who are we to say that the potter cannot make some Mm -hmm. vessels noble for noble use and some for common use right mm-hmm. and uh talks about uh vessels of wrath um i i deal with that in my book but a couple of things that come to mind just very quickly number one paul called himself an object of god's wrath who was changed mm-hmm. he says in, in ephesians that you were once objects of wrath but now you have been restored or you've been brought into his kingdom so mm-hmm. yeah <clears throat> when we're walking away from God, in a sense, we're object of his wrath, but what is the whole purpose of salvation? To draw us into God again, right? Mm. Yeah. Uh, and what's the purpose for... of his
0: wrath, too, is an interesting thing to think about as well.
1: Right. That's a good point. You know, yeah. a lot of times, it's chastisement. It's not. It's not punishment for the sake of punishing. It's mm. punishment for the sake of restoration. Like I said, my father and my mother, I knew that they would never abandon me. They would discipline me. They wouldn't abandon me. I did that with my children. Sure. I, um, uh, one of my son's uh, friends wrote to me, this is now several years ago, and he said, Mr. Saritz said, Um, what was the most important lesson you taught your children? I thought, gee whiz, I taught them so many different lessons. I mean, that was what I was trying to do. You know, we homeschooled them. Uh, I'm trying to teach them scripture. I'm trying to teach them all kinds of other things that go on there. And, uh, But I I thought about that for uh, quite a a bit. And I thought, well, really, I guess the the real bottom line was I taught them that I loved them. Mm -hmm. And I did that three ways. Number one, I I was firm in discipline because I wanted them to know that there are consequences to actions. So that when I said yes, I meant yes. When I said no, I meant no. And uh, that I would discipline them. I can remember one time. when uh, a, a group of my, my children and some of their friends, we were going to a McDonald's and uh, we got out of the car and I saw my son running across the, the parking lot to go into the McDonald's. And I, as he was doing that, I saw a car coming toward him. He's about maybe five years older. Hmm. And I yelled out, I said, Billy, stop Get back. And the car didn't see him. He didn't see the car. But immediately he came back. Mm. And I grabbed a hold of him. I said, good boy. Mm. I wanted him to know that discipline was important. So I disciplined them firmly. Second thing I did was I wanted my children to know that um, they were important to me. There was one occasion where uh, my daughter was going to be uh, performing in this um, it was called the Schubert Festival. She, she took piano uh, lessons and she was able to, to perform in this one thing where you had judges that come along and they do different things. Well, it happened to be on the day where I was off on a retreat, uh, a very high level retreat of Christian men uh, called the New Canaan Society at a very upscale location in, uh, in New Jersey. In the Coconut or the Catskills. Uh, and uh, I got up on Saturday morning. I thought, my daughter needs to know that she's important to me. I'm mean, here, I am taking this, you know, going off to this nice, wonderful situation, learning some good things, having some great relationships with people. My daughter needs to know that she's important. So I took, I drove an hour and a half to find out where she was. I got there in time to walk in, see her perform give her a hug and I left and went back to the, the uh, uh, event but I wanted her to know that she was important to me. Hmm. then the third thing I wanted to do was I wanted the children to know that I was approachable that they had to do what I told them to do but they could question it. They didn't hmm. just have to do it because I said it. and uh, so I wanted them to know that they were approach that I was approachable they could challenge what I believed. And what I said, uh, if I listened to their challenge and said, no, you still got to do it this way, they had to do it. But I was open to doing that. I remember one time, I, my one daughter loved uh, or was really beginning to really enjoy anime, right? And uh, I had come to the conclusion that this was not good. And I told her that. I said, you know, sweetheart, I don't think you ought to be watching the anime. It's not really good. She said, have you ever watched any of it, Dad? <laughs> I said, she said, "Why don't you watch one with you?" I said, oh, okay. So I watched it. It was wonderful. The value <laughs> were great. The the it was very creative in a different way. It was really quite good. I thought, you know, something, sweetheart. That's not a problem. You know, hmm. if you get some of these things that have the wrong kinds of values, that's one thing. But this that was great. So I was approachable. She knew that she could challenge what I I said without me just coming down hard and saying, okay, you gotta believe it. Mm-hmm. So those were the three ways that I taught my children that I loved. That. And uh, those are the three way, uh, three things that God does for us as well. He's firm. He wants us to be doing what he says to do. Mm-hmm. He knows that we're important and he's approachable. We can go and talk to him and ask him and, and seek answers from him. Anyway, getting back to uh, Romans chapter nine, One of the things that talks about uh, hardening Pharaoh's heart, the word for harden in the Hebrew and in the Greek there actually means to make firm. God made firm Pharaoh's heart. What God was trying to do uh, in the whole concept of of what was going on in Israel and in the ancient Near East around Israel and Egypt and all those places, God wanted to make his name known to all the people. Hmm. And he wanted his power to become known to all the people. And so he wanted, them, he wanted to also make known that he was a God who, del, who re, re, restored his people, who was able to deliver them from bondage, that kind of stuff. So he's teaching. This is a teaching lesson that God has. And God teaches not only by didactic, you know, where he's actually writing down the 10 commandments, but also through history, he's teaching things that are happening. And so what he needed to do was make Pharaoh's heart firm so that Pharaoh would not give in too quickly, so that he could show the extent of his power, and so that he was able to bring all 10 plagues on Egypt, instead of having Pharaoh give in after the first one, or the second one, or the third one, and so what that means is he made his heart firm. It didn't mean that he hardened him so that he could never uh, come to acknowledge the truth, because some of his magicians, after I think it was the third plague or whatever, said they had hardened their hearts as well. Then they repented. And they said, Hmm. they went up to Pharaoh and said, hey, Pharaoh, you gotta, you gotta let these guys go because this is bad news for us.
2: Hmm.
1: So it was not a a hardening that was going to go on forever. It was just a hardening in the sense of making it firm so that God was able then to display his power and redeem his people from bondage. Um, Another aspect of that, uh, oh, it says, "Are they?" some vessels are for honorable use some are for common use it doesn't say it's for bad use it's for common use and what happens is it, in the context there it's talking about jacob and esau jacob i loved esau i hated it's actually mm-hmm. referring it's a, a, a verse that comes out of malachi it's referring to the people the descendants of jacob and the descendants of esau and mm-hmm. what god was saying was i chose the descendants of jacob to be the ones I'm going to use for the honorable use of fulfilling the promise I gave to Abraham hmm. and Esau I'm not going to use that and it was so different because Esau was the oldest you would have expected hmm. that God was going to choose him instead of Jacob but no I chose Jacob instead of Esau but what did he choose him for he didn't choose them for salvation he chose them for service that he was going to use them in service of God's service of uh, uh, bringing his message of salvation to mankind through the nation of Israel, which were the descendants of Jacob, uh, as opposed to the descendants of Esau. Um, another one, what else did you say? You said, um, the, the, narrow path. Through the narrow gate. Yeah, yeah. that's very important. Uh, this gate leads to life. That gate leads to destruction. Mm-hmm. Jesus... And much of what he was teaching was not talking about the afterlife. He's talking Hmm. about life in this world now. There Hmm. are people that are pursuing lots of wide, broad roads that lead to destruction in the sense of a wasted life. Hmm. The narrow road is the one that leads to a truly meaningful, fulfilling life. That's what he's talking about in that situation. Uh, I think in my book, i say something like um, uh, it relates to... uh, uh, who has the newest iPhone, the biggest car, the uh, mm. most money? I mean, all these things, they're trivial things. That's what a lot of people are pursuing instead of pursuing things that are really into to life that are dynamic, mm. that are going to experience like having a family that you can rejoice in, uh, mm. doing something for God's kingdom. Like you guys are, are working with uh, uh, youth with a mission, doing something significant. You could be going out and making money, mm-hmm. who cares? Yeah. You know, I mean, how much money can you spend? You get George Soros and you got uh, all these people that have so much money, Bill Gates and all these guys, they got so much, they couldn't spend it if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. And yet they seem to want more. And then what you find out is Bill Gates gets a divorce. And Jeff Bezos gets a divorce. They've got so much money. I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Bill Gates' wife got $150 billion as part of the divorce settlement. Jeez. You know? Like, okay, I got all this money, I got all this prestige, or uh, whatever, but I can't even keep my wife. Hmm. I can't even keep a relationship with the woman who I'm supposed to be ideal, uh having a, a relationship with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The same thing with Jeff Bezos. I mean, he's got all this phenomenal amounts of money, phenomenal amounts of prestige, but it's worthless. Hmm. What yeah. is really important is your relationships with your wife your children your friends the people that are respecting you those kinds of things that are far more important than so that road is narrow whereas the road to destruction of worthless things and by the way the word destruction that means ruin it doesn't mean Hmm. that it's it's death and and everlasting punishment that's not what it's talking about Hmm.
0: Hmm.
1: very interesting yeah yeah another i can't remember if you had another one
0: no those were the two that i brought up yeah Yeah. okay yeah i think the two things that i that I've thought about the most when it comes to hell in in reconsidering and rethinking it and like all the study that I've done um, are like kind of boils down to these two things for me at least. And I don't, I really like a lot of the things that you say, I really like your book. I'm not like sold on one thing, hundred percent. I would say if someone made me label myself, I'd probably be total restoration. Um, but I just think there's a lot of different sides to it that I'm still studying. And yeah. It might take me a long time to get somewhere. Um, but I think the two like main things I think of when I think about this topic is, uh, about punishment. Like what is the purpose of punishment? And also like, uh, what is the actual punishment for like the crime that's committed? Right. Cause I think for myself, it doesn't make sense that I would be punished, uh, infinitely for something that was a finite, like, uh, grievance. Right. So if right. I sin against God and I do something as like a finite being. Doesn't make sense that the punishment for my crime would be eternal separation from God, never able to be restored for any reason, right? It would make sense that if God was a loving God, that and if I could come to an understanding of what I do was bad, that I could change and then become some sort of productive part of His kingdom right? That's what we try to do with our criminals, right? We punish them for the things that they do, and we, we hope to give them a punishment that's adequate and fits their crime, right? We're all finite. We give them finite punishments, and we hope that they can become, uh, like, contributing parts of society again, right? That's the, the point of our whole criminal justice system, is that we want to try to restore people, um, and so a lot of the, the thought I've been doing around this topic is, is is punishment in the Bible restorative, Um, or is it just for the sake of punishment, and is it both of those things ever, or is it always just restorative, and that's sort of the the thing I've been mulling over a lot lately.
1: Mm -hmm. Those are good things to think about, for sure. Um, Let me just encourage you, one place to look at, there's a man who was a wonderful author uh, back in the 1800s, and I think into the early 1900s, his name was George MacDonald, and Mm, uh, he was a, uh, uh, in fact, C.S. Lewis acknowledged him as somebody that he learned a tremendous amount from. In fact, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called uh, George MacDonald, An Anthology, where he makes a lot of quotations from George MacDonald's spiritual writings. But one of the things that George MacDonald did was he put out this, uh, these unspoken sermons. Uh, and one unspoken sermon is on justice. And that deals with that particular issue very well. And he's got a, a wonderful perspective of how he works in that. Uh, just very to get to some of the, uh, but so George McDonald, Unspoken Sermon on Justice. You'll find that is uh, very encouraging to, to uh, read that. But um, God, I, you know, you're, you're not married. Are either of you guys married?
0: He's almost married, I'm not. Yeah,
1: okay. I'm getting married but Okay, but you don't have children. Um, when, you're, when you have children, you will realize that you discipline them. There's positive things even with the punishment. You know, I spanked my kids because I knew that was a very effective way to get their attention and to stop them from doing something that was ultimately going to hurt them. Right? Mm-hmm. So there is an aspect of punishment that brings pain in people's lives. And mm-hmm. certain people need to have that punishment that leads right. to pain. They need to acknowledge in their own hearts that what I've done to hurt that person really is painful. You know, hmm. a person who uh, uh, rapes a woman, I mean, he's got to understand what has been done. that That's just right. wicked. And uh, so there is that aspect of it. But ultimately, everything is to, it, it's more chastisement in the sense of, I want to bring some kind of recognition and restoration. I don't want to just punish for the sake of punishing. I think in one of the... Um, uh, one of my videos or, or not a video, but I was um, in an interview at one point and I made the comment that you know, God is not just punishing and, punishing and punishing, you know, you just kind of keep on going on forever, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, it's one thing to say punishment, but punishment forever, that's a totally different issue. We see punishment all the time, it's life. Um, Absolutely. We see people, uh, when I worked with the Bowery Mission in New York City, um, is dealing with drug addicts, alcoholics all the time. That's, that's it's, it's to try to restore these people. They come in and you talk to them. A lot of them wonderful people. Uh, you get to know some of these homeless guys and some of the, mm. the um, uh, people that are on drugs. And they will tell kids, say, don't get on these drugs, while they're, mm. they're still fighting it themselves because they know that they've it, it gotten caught, but they don't know how to get yeah. out of it. That's why they come right. to a mission and they realize that God's got... The only answer that can that can uh, bring them freedom uh for hmm. what they're doing but the purpose of punishment from god's perspective is not just to uh bring pain it's to somehow restore the person so right and to cleanse things you know god uh like when he brought judgment on sodom and gomorrah it was just to cleanse the land hmm.
2: uh,
1: i think i say it in that book um or else my other book that i'm writing now. <laughs> <laughs> I deal with, I deal with uh, in, in my one I'm writing right now, the one "Searching for Truth." That one I've got uh, two chapters on. Why does God allow pain and suffering in the world? Hmm. And uh, and I do address the issue of well, why would God command His people to wipe out Canaan? You know, to kill uh, everybody there. That's a that's a big issue. Right. Isn't that being kind of cruel. Um. By the way if there is no potential for a person to come into God's presence after this life, then that was really, cool. I mean, you didn't even give anybody a chance. Yeah. Um, it was interesting, uh, my internet connection is unstable, so hopefully it'll be okay. Um, <laughs> the um, I was in seminary, <laughs> and I'm in a class um, and I don't know what the class is about, what was going on there, but the professor, made a side comment it was not even a major part just sort of a throwaway comment and it changed my perspective on things he said in ancient canaan venereal disease and communicable diseases were rampant because of their wicked lifestyle
2: Hmm.
1: and i thought wow no wonder you got to burn it how do you get rid of it and what people don't understand is that wickedness sin brings pain to present generations hmm. but also to future generations if you have um it's not so much now but when the AIDS epidemic came out uh hmm. many years a number of years ago one of the most tragic things in the world was finding these babies that were born with AIDS hmm. they had nothing it hadn't anything to do with them but they right. were experiencing pain and suffering because of something that their parents had done that's a a small example, but when you've got rampant ungodly character going on, what it does is it brings uh, pain to that generation, but also to future generations. And God Hmm. in his wisdom says, I got to wipe it out. I got to stop it right at that point. That's what he did with Noah. He said, okay, there's wickedness. Um, Every thought imagination of mankind is evil continually. Well, Hmm. interestingly, with regard to Canaan, he says to Abraham, I'm going to wipe out Canaan, but not yet, because the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. I have to wait until it gets to the point where I have to say, okay, now i got to shut it down. Hmm. So there is a point where sin leads to pain and suffering. God says there's a limit. Within yeah. your body, You, uh, I, I, one of the things I talk about in my new book <laughs> that I hope will get published <laughs> is uh, torture, you know, and I deal with that. And I, and I was reading a book by a, a man named Captain McDaniel, who was um, a prisoner of war in North Vietnam during the war. And he was there, I think, like six years or something like that. And it was horrible. They were torturing him and different kinds of things. And uh, what you realize is that at some point, torture doesn't work anymore mm-hmm. because. The body goes numb, an area of your body goes numb, your body goes numb, or you go unconscious. So there's only a certain, level. God has allowed a level of pain that any individual or culture can experience, but he's got a limit at it. Now, we may think that the limit is too far. You know, we may think, well, you know, God, you should have stopped the limit a lot earlier than that, but God in his wisdom knows exactly how far to to allow the limit to go, and and, in a culture, He stops it at a certain point in an individual person. He will stop it at a certain point. And then there are a bunch of other things too that that God does. So that's not the only answer to that. But but that was one of the things that just totally changed my perspective. And I thought, oh, wow. I hadn't thought about that. There are a lot of things that God does that we don't know about. You know, we're finite. We're trying to figure out how does this infinite being uh, do things. And he's revealed a tremendous amount in his word. But there are some things that he has not revealed. For example, in the book of Job, Job and his friends are trying to figure out why is it that Job is suffering the way he is? I mean, you know, this guy loses his his uh, children, he loses, loses all his property, uh, and then he gets this terrible um, uh, physical disease. I mean, this is horrible. Hmm. Well, his friends come along and say, well, it's because of your own personal sin, Job. I mean, it's because you are a wicked, wicked sinner. I mean, otherwise, it could never have happened. And Job is saying, well, wait a minute. I'm not a wicked sinner. I mean, I, I, I'm i sure I'm not perfect, but I sure haven't done anything that bad. What he didn't know was something that God was doing in the angelic world. He was showing the angelic world and through the book of Job, showing our natural world how a man of integrity deals with pain and suffering.
2: Hmm.
1: I'll just, yeah. one other little... Uh, little nugget here. This is not from, this is not original with me. It was from a friend. <laughs> in Job chapter one, God calls Satan. He says, Satan, have you considered my servant, Job, an upright man, blameless in all of what he does, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And Satan says, the only reason he serves you is because you give him good things. You take those good things away, he'll hurt you to your face. And so God says, okay, you can take away his things. You cannot touch his body. Satan comes and he wipes out everything. I mean, including his children
2: right? Mm-hmm. and
1: everything that he has. At the end of it, uh, Job says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Second chapter, God calls uh, Satan again. He uses the exact same words can you considered my servant Job, a man of upright character, blameless in all of his ways, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And then he adds a phrase he did not have in chapter one. And the phrase is, who did not give up his integrity when you incited me against him. Hmm. So the question is, why did God bring up the issue of integrity in chapter two and not in chapter one? Hmm. Because in chapter two, or in chapter one, Satan might have been right. The only way you know if a person has true integrity is if he's gone through trials and gone through them successfully. Then you can say that person has true integrity. Hmm. Another little nugget of that is in chapter one, God said that Job or that Satan could take away all of the things that uh, he had, but he could not touch his body. Satan comes, kills his children, but not his wife, because the two were one. Oh, interesting. She was part of his body. That part. Two were one at that point. So, Job. Satan could not kill his wife. He could only kill his children. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I I do talk about that a little bit in my second book. Very interesting,
0: yeah. yeah, Definitely. Do you have any other questions so far?
1: There are things that happen in life that we don't know God's perspective, what he's doing. But they're good purposes. Yeah. He wanted to show the angelic world. He wanted to show our world how a man of integrity really works. So he was not testing Job in the sense of trying to see if Job is a man of integrity. God knew it. He he said that at the very beginning. What he's doing is employing Job in his service to use him as somebody that will demonstrate to the angelic world and to the material world that we live in, our earthly world, how a true man of integrity addresses and deals with uh, difficult Mm -hmm. trials. Mm
0: -hmm. Very interesting. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Yeah. Well, we're about two hours in. I've loved this conversation so (laughs) far. Um, It's been really awesome for me. Um, You have any other questions you want to ask?
3: No, I think this has been great. I think it's a really enlightening episode on the introduction to mm-hmm. total restor or total or ultimate
2: restoration. Yeah, uh, I call ultimate
1: restoration. Yeah,
3: yeah. I, I, I want from... to yeah. 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 make sure. Universal salvation, the... ultimate. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. want to yeah. stay away from the word uh, universal because I know it gets a uh,
1: gets and tricky. But
3: yeah, I mean, this is a topic that clearly has been talked about since mm-hmm. the beginning of the church. With like we talked about with Gregory mm-hmm. of is it Nisa Nisa. Nisa?
1: Gregor of Nyssa is how Nissa, I pronounce it Yeah, I, you know, yeah Nissa. however they do it in the actual Greek I'm not sure I mean I am Greek but I don't speak fluently <laughs> uh, <laughs> so,
3: right yeah but all that to say like this is a very um a very old topic a very mm. old uh tradition or belief that's been held in Christianity for uh, apparently since its onset and it's something to keep striving after and um, I'm sure even if like us here or the people listening if you guys get like confused or maybe overwhelmed, don't worry, don't feel mm-hmm. overwhelmed. Don't feel like, oh no, my world is shattering. It's it's okay. Like there's mm-hmm. God is a very gracious and patient God and He will walk you through this if you
0: ask him to. And uh um, yeah. and yeah. there's a lot of good books you can read on the topic yeah. too if you wanna have further study. Mm-hmm. Um for one book that you my book up, is Heaven's called Doors.
1: Heaven's Doors wider than you ever believed by George yeah. W. Sarris. I also, a way, read, right? have a little booklet. I'm sorry, what? It's a pretty quick read, right, too. Oh, there you go, yeah. a little booklet, too. That is, look, this one is a, a real quick read. This will be, mm. you can read in a half hour. It's called How Wide Are Heaven's Doors by George mm. W. Sarris. Um, okay. It's, uh, the subtitle is The Biblical Case for Ultimate Restoration. That mm. one, I produced that one um, about a year ago. A friend said, you know, what we need is not a, a long book because people get i of reading long books. We've seen something short. And so I thought, well, I'll just put that together. So it, it doesn't have the stories in it that, about, that I bring in and a lot of other stuff It doesn't have anywhere near the, the volume of information, but it does address the issue very quickly. And it gives you a basic introduction to what this is all about, and uh, deals with a lot of the specific issues, um, mm-hmm. like um, uh, what about judas you know if he would, mm-hmm. would have been better for him never to have been born how about mm-hmm. um the uh the rich man and lazarus all those right. things are brought up in that particular book as well
2: right yeah
0: that's awesome cool
3: yeah so a lot of good resources out there definitely get a hold of the, a copy of heaven's doors or mm-hmm. the that pamphlet how wide are heaven's Doors? really helpful information to educate yourself and like kind of like it give you introduction into uh this grand topic
1: hmm
2: Mm-hmm. yeah
1: well, and George, if anybody talks so to you on. if anybody talks to you just tell them you're a calvin mini and you won't get. <laughs> yeah. yeah there you go
0: <laughs> in disguise <laughs>
3: absolutely i always joke with people that i'm reformed but not quite calvinist because there was a period of my faith journey where i reformed my thinking from what i was like previously thinking so <laughs> it's not reformers but it's like yeah i reformed my thoughts so I am That's reformed, good. but not Calvinist. And my friends are always <laughs> like, no, you're not. You can't say that. because yeah. They're they're pretty strong, uh, Calvinists. They're like, you can't say that. I'm like, but I am. And so <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh awesome. great God bless you guys and thank you so much for giving me the privilege of talking to you. It was really a delight. Yeah, thanks yeah, for coming on.
3: Yeah, it's been an honor having you on. And um really it, it, we we're excited when when we mm-hmm. found out you were uh, Want to come on the show or, or when you when you said yes to our invitation, that was uh, exciting for us as well. So thank you. Thank yeah. you very much.
1: Well, I've been very grateful for Derry because his father and mother, uh, actually, and his uncle, um, contacted me a long time ago. I think I was still in Massachusetts. So it was probably before the 1990s or maybe right at the beginning of that time frame. Um, and asked if they could use a, a copy of my narration of the King James Bible to put on... Mm-hmm. Uh, the inter I think, I think it was the internet. Is it just uh, so it must have been in the 90s, but it, it was just coming out and uh, I was that was delightful. So I, I was able to uh, meet them and uh, talk with them. And so they've been wonderful, wonderful people. So I have really mm. appreciated uh, yeah. your mom and dad as well as your uncle. Uh, that's awesome. Well. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's fun. And if our listeners, if you ever again, if you ever want to hear George's voice, if you miss it at all, just go to Bible Gateway. You can listen to the NIV version and hear him whenever you want. Read the Bible to you yeah cool well thank you everybody for listening you can check us out on youtube on spotify itunes everywhere you want to listen to podcasts or watch us we have tiktok instagram all those kind of things so Mm -hmm. check us out hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll see you guys next week
3: thanks guys